Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We talk about real estate in this city. We talk about housing. We talk about the market every once in a while when numbers come out or when something happens. And as long as I can remember now, we lead into a discussion like this with news that, hey, the housing market has gone up in Hamilton. And so we're going to do it again. Nothing's changed. Housing market has gone up again in Hamilton. The latest numbers that are just out are that the average house in Hamilton has gone up by 15% over this time last year. 15%. I mean, it's housing, it's always been a good investment. It is now an insanely good investment, apparently, especially around here. However, I don't want to throw cold water because I don't know that there's cold water to be thrown, but there are a few folks out there who are throwing a few cautionary waving a few cautionary flags, perhaps saying, wait a second, just, just keep a couple things in mind. We want to talk about some of those today, uh, which again, doesn't really take away from the incredible heat of Hamilton's housing market. But again, maybe just, hmm, pause for thought for a second. Let me bring in Judy Marseilles. Uh, you know, Judy, because, um, well, you see Judy Marseilles real estate signs all over the city. Uh, you also know her because she does a show um, sold on Hamilton that's pl- that comes on 900 CHML the first Saturday morning of every month. Judy, how are you tonight? Hey, good evening, Scott. Nice to talk to you. Thanks well, for inviting me. Great to talk to you too. And just before we get into those red flags or cautionary flags that I'm talking about, it, it seems here when you look at numbers in Hamilton and you see these numbers that continue to skyrocket. And then you look down the road and you see some of the warning signs that are happening in Toronto. The rental market is really drying up in Toronto right now. It's way down. Uh, A lot of other things going on. It seems as though that migration from Toronto to Hamilton just continues to pick up. Well, I think there's a number of reasons for that, Scott, as uh, have been identified by uh, our own Marvin uh, Ryder when he talks about the economy. Uh, with people being able to work from home now, uh, that commuting challenge that kept a lot of people back in the really expensive areas of Toronto has suddenly been reduced. So um, they're looking at opportunities. And as I've said for a long time, Hamilton has been too low for too long. But having said that, we are all sensitive to the various economic um, uh, examples of what's going on. So right now, Scott, I would suggest to you that the reason there's the push on the price is basic theory of supply and demand. And if you look at the number of listings, do you know uh, in 2020, our real estate board suggested that there were only 18,567 listings. Do you know we haven't had that low number since 2003? Wow. And what was in 2003? Anything in particular, or was it just another fluky year? Uh, No, it wasn't anything particular. In fact, I think people thought that was actually quite good. (laughs) Um, (laughs) By comparison, yeah. Yes. But uh, if you look at the numbers over decades, they're all around the 18 to 20,000, notwithstanding the boom years of um, when the real estate uh, listings went up crazy because demand fell off substantially in the recession and so on. So, you know, was, um, we really have to look at the dynamics of the uh, economy, but also we have to look at some other things too right now. We have in Hamilton um, an aging demographic, and if you look at the numbers there, for a long time Hamilton was the uh, second oldest demographic in Ontario. But Recently, the millenniums have just taken over, millennials, pardon me, (laughs) have taken over from the baby boomers. So I haven't seen the latest stats with the average, but uh, that could influence, obviously, the demand as well, because they're all looking to start a new life, Mm -hmm. a home. And uh, as I said, uh, everybody's got a little more time at home these days. Well, let's let's go to some of these cautionary, I've read a couple of these cautionary stories that are out there, and I want to ask you about them. The first one is, and uh, this one comes from Royal Bank, the Royal Bank of Canada's chief risk officer. So if you listen to the name of his title, it probably says something, he's probably a cautious guy to begin with, chief risk <laughs> officer. Nonetheless, he is predicting 
that like a lot of people are saying, you know, the, the market can't go up forever. It just can't. There's got to be some point when things change a little bit. He's saying he's expecting an 8% drop in housing prices over the next year with a worst case scenario of a 29.6% drop. Can you see any realistic way in the Hamilton market something like that happens? Well, I think he's looking at uh, an overall um, activity level, including the Toronto market, which has a lot of influence, obviously, on the average. Um, Having said that, I did look over some stats, and just in the last 10 years, for example, the average price in Hamilton has gone up 123%. Now, if you take a look at year over year, it would be reasonable um, to suggest that we might, might stay in that range or go down marginally. But again, I want to go back to what I said earlier. Hamilton was too low for too long relative to our sister cities. And I think we had a lot of opportunities here in Hamilton. We have a lot of fabulous lifestyles to share. And therefore, the opportunity for families to come to Hamilton has certainly increased. And as a result, then, of course, that's going to increase the demand on housing. So if you're a young family living in Toronto right now, you can't buy your first home for under a million dollars. It's pretty stunning. It really is. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Judy, the other thing that... um that a lot of people are pointing to. And as I said, is at some point you would think nothing ever goes up, up, up. There's going to be a dip at some point. And I'm wondering if you're seeing any concern from people that the market is so high, is so hot right now. Do I want to buy in when I could spend $600,000 easily now, 700000 easily on a home in this area And then in a month, 10 or 15% could drop out of the value if I really believe this is overinflated. Is there any skittishness among people or is it just grab, 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 whatever you can get? Well, I don't know if it's grab, grab, grab. I think there have been a lot of people who have been sort of sitting on the sidelines and are now thinking, you know what, enough of this already. Uh, I'm going to buy in because the fear is that Hamilton could in fact, rise to a level that we've seen by our sister cities, as I mentioned earlier, in Toronto and so on. And um, a case in point, if you look at where the activity occurred, for example, in December, Hamilton Centre had uh, the highest number of uh, sales, and it has the lowest average price. So that says to me that people are looking at buying their first homes because They don't want to be left out of the market. And I don't see the same red flags that I see in other areas. Um, For example, the lower uh, Stony Creek area has been very popular. They had huge, huge activity. And um, same with Ancaster and the northeast corner of Burlington. So that suggests to me a couple of things. That Going back to my idea of people who didn't want to commute before are now reconsidering the concept because they can work from home. And as I'm hearing more and more from some of our social media people, the concept of working from home is growing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily follow that when COVID hopefully leaves us, people will go back to what we thought was an office routine. Yeah, it seems that the suburbs now, what we consider the suburbs and maybe too far out is wherever high-speed internet ends. As long as you have high-speed internet in your area, that's still considered urban enough for people to now be able to work from home. Seriously, and if you're just too far out, well, we can't, but uh, that seems to be the dividing line. Now, let me say, I, I mentioned the chief risk officer for RBC. Funny that the same bank, now it's a big bank, so they have lots of different people, the senior economist or a senior economist for RBC goes the other way a little bit. And he says, you know what? He expects that because there's going to be so much and there is so much demand that bidding wars, if they're not already all across the country are going to become the norm. We see that to some degree in Hamilton. Has it become the norm in Hamilton now that bidding wars break out? Well, I would say there's certainly more of them than we've probably seen in a very long period of time, to be honest. But one has to balance the discussion around housing against the economic profile looking forward. Um, Job security. 
income security, all of these elements that are at the foundation of buying a home um, are going to impact how we move forward. And again, Hamilton has been a wonderful location for so many people because we have that community stability. And that's what I think also encourages people to uh, invest in our area. And uh, I'm suggesting that, you know, we went through some really challenging years, decade ago or so, and I think we have now found a very stable footprint. Hmm. And I'm going to suggest that Hamilton is in a very good place. Having said that, we are all at risk relative to the overall economy. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately, um, but I would say that Hamilton is not in a bubble at the moment. Um, I suggest that there are areas of Hamilton that are very, very well-priced, and people have lots of opportunity. But again, you, you, it's supply and demand. Well, we only have a minute or so left here, but the one area, when you look at the numbers that just came out, the one area that is flat right now, there's been almost no growth in value, and I'm kind of surprised, is condos in Hamilton. Does that tell us that Hamilton is just not a condo town or that it's not a condo town yet? Well, I, I don't know if it's either. I think it just it, um, it speaks to who's doing the buying. And if you have first-time home buyers who are going to have families they want the more traditional home. They want to have a play area for the children. They want to have access to schools and that kind of a situation. Um, I'm going to make you laugh when I say this, but I bought a condo just a week uh, before the COVID hit. <laughs> <laughs> I think you told us that once upon a time. Yes, you were moving in the day we were talking to you. Yes. So I'm, uh, I'm learning all about condo life, to be honest with you, Scott. But I would say that it... it accommodates um, a different age demographic. Um, the young families, they want homes. And if there's anything that's come out of COVID, and uh, uh, like, for example, pools, a couple of years ago, we couldn't give away a home with a pool. Now we can't get them. People want recreational space at their fingertips. And with children, you, you know, you want the out, outside opportunities and you want to walk and all of these different elements. And um, also, people want to be away from each other with COVID at the moment, and perhaps, um, you know, condos and apartments and so on don't give you quite that same opportunity. Although I will say in the condo I'm fortunate to live in, uh, they have been just amazing at uh, making sure everybody stays healthy. It is, um, I mean, look, the news, I've said this a million times on this show, if you own a home, if you're already in the market, the news is nothing but good again and again and again. If you're on the outside hoping to get in, uh, I think probably I feel sorry for you a little bit because I think you're probably getting ulcers trying to figure out when to jump and uh, how to get on the escalator because it is really tough. Um, Judy Marsales, always love having you on. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. Well, thank you. Thank you, Scott. And I just want to say to anybody, it is a seller's market. So for heaven's sakes, get out there now if you're thinking of it. <laughs> you're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, the last few days, we've heard a number of stories. We've talked a few times on this show about Bitcoin. Um, we were talking yesterday about a guy who has forgotten the passcode to get his Bitcoin and could lose $321 million worth because he can't remember how to access it. We've heard about Bitcoin investments going through the roof, a lot of other things. You've probably heard something in the last number of days, weeks, months about Bitcoin. Now, here's the thing. Some of you, this is all old news to you. Some of you know everything that we're already talking about. You are completely versed in the whole idea of cryptocurrency and all the rest of the stuff. There are, however, others I have learned who don't really have any real idea what this is. They hear it. They nod politely when someone talks about it because, you know, you don't want to admit that you don't know. You don't want to admit that you're the one who, you know, thinks you should probably know, but you don't. Well, it's okay. You don't have to admit it to us. We are here to help you. That's what we're here for. That over the next, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes, we are going to hopefully be able to teach you enough that you can carry on an intelligent conversation about cryptocurrency by the end of the evening with someone who brings it up and then you can go, oh, sure, I can talk about that. That's, that's, that's our role here. 
We're going to try and do that. Let me bring in Don Fox. Don is one of the hosts of Planning Your Financial Future, which you hear right here on 900 CHML all the time. We love to have Don on to talk about money and investments and all that kind of stuff. Don, how are you tonight? Great, Scott. How are you yourself? I am doing great. Thank you. Um, so as I say, we've heard this story yesterday about this guy who lost his password and now could be out over 320 million in Bitcoin. Uh, the other day I saw a story that said Stephen Harper, former prime minister, says that maybe Bitcoin should be Canada's reserve currency. Yet, as I say, a lot of people that I talk to don't seem to really understand the whole concept of cryptocurrency and what it is. We're talking in a different language here. Explain the concept of what this is. You know what? Um, you know, it's probably better to ask a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old this question more so than a 58-year-old. But I'm going to do my best, Scott, <laughs> because it seems that the uh, it's kind of like technology. The younger uh, people are are definitely kind of in the know more about this. They're talking to their friends about it, and basically, it's a it's a virtual currency. You you set up a Bitcoin is a is a computer file, and it's stored in a digital wallet. So it's worth something because basically others have said it's worth something. The supply and demand brings this up. And Bitcoin is one of many, many cryptocurrencies uh, that are right now, actually, there's over 4,000 cryptocurrencies out there. And so- uh, it's... it's uh, it's definitely taking, you know, you, you go back to 2017 and it had that massive run up and everybody was hear, hearing all about it. And then all of a sudden it went the other way. And then all of a sudden, well, I guess that was a fad. It's not coming back. And uh, now it's back again. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting and it is gaining acceptance. So that's the good part about this. Well, it, it, on one hand, I guess one way that I heard someone describe it or define it was many people have now on their iPhones uh, a Tim card or something they've put, they've loaded money onto a card or onto their iPhone. And so when you go through and scan it, it's not real as digital money, but it's still money. So that's kind of the idea behind it. As you say, it's virtual money. It's not, you're not handing over bills or something, mm-hmm. but you the trip to sign up for a crypto trading platform. And I'm assuming there's many out there and there's more and more all the time. And so you would, you know, basically transfer real Canadian dollars and buy cryptocurrencies. And like I said, there's many you can buy. There's, uh, you know, lots uh, from Ethereum to Litecoin to Ripple to Matic, Stellar. But the one everybody seems to always talk about because it was the originator is Bitcoin. It's the, it is the Zamboni or the Kleenex of cryptocurrency. We, you know, you think <laughs> exactly. capital word. Um, but one of the things that's so interesting about this is that a dollar or a pound or a euro or whatever else, there are, there's countries, there's governments, there's gold standard, there's something behind it that, that is propping this up. The, the Bitcoin, the cryptocurrencies, they don't belong to a government. They don't belong to a company. So how do we ensure if you're going to buy some or invest in it, how do you guarantee that it remains valuable, that it maintains its worth and that all of a sudden someone someday doesn't just sort of say, well, that's no longer any good. Well, that's the thing. If, if you're going to hold it, then that's the risk you're taking because they are extremely um, volatile. But if you're going to say, okay, I'm dealing with somebody over in Europe and they, they want to deal in pounds and we're in Canadian dollars. And so what people are doing is they're going to they convert into whatever their currency is to buy their Bitcoin, as an example, and they can make that trade virtually, like very quickly, and with very little trading costs. As you know, if you go to a bank or institution and buy U.S. dollars, they have a, a, a cost, a spread, they call it, from what you purchase the U.S. dollar for. Then, Because you read in the papers, it's trading at this, but you have to pay this, this commission or a fee. And then when you sell it, when you come back from your trip, then you have to pay another fee to convert it back to Canadian dollars. And this is uh, limited extremely uh, to a very narrow margin when you're dealing with cryptos. There's very little fees involved in transaction costs. And that's the nice thing about them. Plus, it's very quick. Bingo, bango, you can send money to Brazil and turn it. And, but the thing is, once they have that money, they are often want to convert it to their own currency because the actual... Bitcoin, as we just talked about, can go from being worth $50,000 last week to $46,000 a coin this week. 
Well, and the other part of it that becomes confusing for a lot of people is it's, there are very few places right now. You couldn't walk into a store in most cases and say, I want to pay in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. You've got to take it. I mean, it's, it's almost like it's an investment tool, which you then have to translate into your local currency to pay for something. You can't just buy, well, you can, I suppose, in some places, but most places you can't just buy something with it. You're right. And that's, that number is getting up all the time. Uh, you know, micro. You know, you, at first it was only technology companies that were kind of endorsing it. Uh, Microsoft was one of the early adopters, and you literally could go buy a Microsoft uh, video game using crypto. But then in Europe, uh, BMW is using them now. In the States, AT&T, you can pay in cryptocurrency. Here in Canada, Shopify is now uh, using uh, cryptocurrencies, or Bitcoin in this case. So they are starting to get some traction, and as they get more accepted – it seems to be obviously there's the demand and supply and demand. The price of Bitcoin is starting to rise, uh, to say the least, to be honest. It, to say the least. The best performing areas last year. Um, you know, you go back to December 2019, they were $9,400. And now they went over 51000 just last week. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, just before the break, you're talking about the value of this. Um, as of right now, one Bitcoin is currently valued at $46,500. Is the value, and you said it was up from about 9000 not that long ago, is this entirely speculative? Is this just an investment or why the value so high now? It is uh, purely supply and demand. So with Bitcoin particularly, there's only 21 million coins. And so that's, that's, that's it. So when you have only that many coins, now the nice thing with a virtual currency, you can buy 0. 0.0001 of a coin because you're not actually changing a, like a penny or anything physical. You can get a, any specific um, fraction of a, of a coin. So that part doesn't matter. But the more demand, because the supply is fixed, once the demand goes higher and higher, the price goes higher and higher. So that's what you're seeing right now. But just to give you an idea of the volatility, you know, you go back to 2016, which is only five years ago. December 2016 was only, it was $1,000. A year later, it was $25,000. And it looked like it was was just going to continue to rise. One year later, it was 4,200. So it lost over 80% of its value the following year. And then it went to uh, 9,400 in December of 2019. And just uh, last December, it was 37000 And then, as you said, right now, it's forty six five. So just to give you an idea how much that can fluctuate. So the risk is actually holding it. If you're going to trade in it to buy something, um, you know, it could be in Canada or overseas, not a problem because you can convert right back to your own currency right away. But if you hold it, then now you're taking the risk that it can go up and down. The other thing, and and, I mean, forgive my cynicism, I'll play the skeptic here, but because this is entirely a digital product, it it exists in online only, it's in the digital world, you don't hold on to something, even though they say there's only 21 million of these, how do we ensure that someone doesn't just somehow create some more, I mean, does it not seem like it's the easiest thing in the world to, to have fraud or, or to make something up when there's no actual product at all? Well, there's definitely some fraud cases. The, the algorithm, and trust me, Scott, I have no idea how they make these things and all this whole mining idea, but based on the math, they can only create 21 million of these particular coins. But that doesn't mean the, the new and improved version doesn't come out and there's a better one out there. Say Ripple is the next one or Matic is the next one. And all of a sudden, it's like, this is more secure, there's more benefits, and that one will start rising in price, and Bitcoin would go down in price. So, like I mentioned earlier, there was over 4,000 different cryptocurrencies, and Bitcoin is the one everybody has heard of. But uh, when you start, you know, peeling back the onion, it's just like, wow, it's Pandora's box. It is just a different world. And so there is people that literally just play in this sandbox, Every day, they're experts. I'm certainly not. I know enough just to be dangerous, okay, when it comes <laughs> to this kind of stuff. But it, it is good to be aware of how they work and the volatility that goes with them. 
But do people, I mean, you're an investor, you're an advisor. Do people come to you and say, I want to buy these? And if you do, like, how, how does someone go about even buying one? You, you can't, do you just go online or does it buying like stocks or how does it work? Well, you actually, uh, you know, just go online and you get onto a crypto trading platform. And from there you can sign up. And then assumingly, I've never done this myself because I don't own any, but you, you then can watch it go up and down. You can... If you have Bitcoin, apparently PayPal, you can move it to PayPal to pay for things. Um, obviously, I mentioned Microsoft, and, and there is more and more that are coming up. But it's just like, a, like you mentioned, having that Tim's card, it's, uh, it's just a digital way of storing value. And the fact that it goes up and down, that really means that the price of the purchase. So if something costs $100, well, that would mean this week it would cost you more cryptocurrency than last week because last week it was worth more. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. very volatile. Yeah, for sure. And you can only, the way I would liken it to would be almost like a, a Russian ruble or, or a third world country currency where there's so many factors and it's so new and, and there's so much distrust that it can go up and down dramatically. So yeah, yeah, it, it's, yeah. It's, uh, it is a different world. I personally think it will continue. Perhaps this may not be... It's still in its infancy. This whole thing started in 2009. So it's got a long ways to go, and whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's a different one going forward, uh, who knows? The, the sky's the limit with this type of currency. You've got to start a new one, the Fox. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, That's there you go. You start start your own cryptocurrency. 50-some-odd thousand dollars. There was a definitely... A lot of crypto millionaires back in 2017, and I do know uh, one client of mine's son had some, and he thankfully was selling um, along the way, but he kept some. But you can imagine if you bought some at 25000 the next thing you know, it's 4000 yeah, no, it, it is, it is certainly volatile and you've, I think you've got to have a bit of a stomach for it, but, uh, anyway, listen, Don, really appreciate you explaining it. Um, because again, a, a lot of people just sort of looking glassy eyed at the whole concept, but I appreciate you doing this. Thanks for your time. Wow, my pleasure, Scott. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Number of years ago, I got completely fascinated by the assassination of John F. Kennedy. It started after I saw a show on A&E called The Men Who Killed Kennedy. Some of you may have seen that show. I think it was six parts or something, and it was very well done. To this day, I have no idea how much of it is true, how much of it is simply mystery, but it was certainly based on the assassination. I mean, I wasn't even alive in 1963, but the mystery of what happened was so juicy and the loose ends seemingly so many that I dove right into the whole Kennedy assassination thing. I became one of those guys. Well, as I was reading about the Kennedy assassination and watching stuff and everything else, one of the men whose work I came across at that time was a forensic pathologist who testified in front of the Warren Commission and had been one of the first to express his public doubt about the famed single bullet theory. His name was Dr. Cyril Wecht. Now, in subsequent years, I kept seeing him pop up because he was called upon to advise on cases including Martin Luther King Jr. and Elvis Presley and John Bonet Ramsey and O.J. Simpson and the Branch Davidians and Waco and others and on and on and on. He's now written a book about his work. It's called The Life and Deaths, very clever, The Life and Deaths of Cyril Wecht, Memoirs of America's Most Controversial Forensic Pathologist. I'm thrilled tonight to have him join us for a few minutes here on the show. Dr. Wecht, thank you so much for taking a few minutes tonight to join well, us. Really uh, appreciate thank it. Thank you for inviting me. And we will have to change the title to North America's, right? <laughs> Canada. Um, because uh, my Canadian colleagues are gentlemen and ladies, and uh, they don't, uh, I remember from my dealings with them in my uh, years when I used to do international conferences in England and Canada and so on, um, wonderful people. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to be with you. Well, it is a treat for me. And I must say, when I read the name of your book, the uh, the Memoirs of America's Most Controversial Forensic Pathologist, I think that's probably true, uh, that you are America's Most Controversial Forensic Pathologist. How does one earn that title, though? How, how does one become <laughs> the most controversial? <laughs> well, some people would not be proud of that. Uh, I must say the title came from the publisher, and um, it is their idea not mine, uh, but um, 
I guess it's uh, probably uh, valid, accurate. Um, how does one happen uh, to uh, <clears throat> acquire uh, that uh, appellation? I guess the answer is by becoming involved in uh, major cases, the famous, infamous, uh, highly controversial cases that people continue to talk about uh, decades after they have occurred. And um, when you um, take a stand and make statements about that case, which uh, do not fall um, you know, on all fours with what has been the official um, rendition and ruling, then you become controversial, right? Well, sure. Casting doubt on the official version, which, which I always exactly. find interesting because you clearly believe, uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you clearly believe from what you've written and talked about in the past that many of the official conclusions in many of these cases are wrong. Well, yes, I don't lump them together, or I don't go out looking just to, really, I don't go out looking to uh, make a name for myself or and get myself on a television program or so on. Um, and certainly, you know, at, at this age, um, I, don't, I don't need that. And I never, I've never gone seeking it. Um, and as a matter of fact, as it turns out, um, and many of the conclusions um, that I have expressed are those held by a majority of people. And let me just mention, and, and if people, one day, once they come to know the facts, believe me, um, uh, those cases will acquire uh, many, many more adherents uh, to the uh, unof unofficial explanation. Um, JFK, RFK, MLK, uh, Elvis Presley, uh, John Benet Ramsey, um, uh, O.J. Simpson, you know, they, those are some cases in which uh, my findings as a forensic uh, pathologist, based upon my experience, I've done 21,000 autopsies. I've reviewed, signed off, supervised about 41,000 others. I've been doing medical legal consultations uh, from attorneys uh, all over the United States and testified uh, in, in your country, Canada, and uh, all around the country and in several other foreign countries, Australia and Israel and uh, and Taiwan um, and uh, and a couple of Caribbean places. So, you know, I, I base my findings on what I believe to be the hard scientific facts. Um, and I think that I've been able to maintain my credibility after all these years. I've been doing this since 1962. So at 38, 21 mm. is 59 years, 59 years. You know, and I continue to receive consultations uh, from attorneys all over. About a month ago, I had a case from Israel, um, a homicide, the conviction being appealed. So, you know, people are not going to come to you if they think uh, you're just uh, somebody with a mouth uh, and an opinion uh, for hire, because uh, you know, you, you've got to maintain your credibility. And then I deal with the facts. So that makes you controversial. Well, what I find so... I don't know if the word is troubling or puzzling about this is many of the cases that you do get brought into, at least that you're, that you get fame for or infamy or attention for are these enormous cases that the forensic pathologists, the coroners have to know when they're in the middle of this, that these are going to be hugely publicized and closely scoured cases. And I'm wondering then, so if they're wrong, is it because of carelessness? Is it because of political pressure? Why does it keep happening? Well, uh, they're not all the same. <clears throat> Some are undoubtedly due to political pressure. The JFK and RFK and MLK undoubtedly fall into the matter of political pressure. Others fall into the realm of um, uh, bias, prejudice, um, uh, conscious, uh, most uh, uh, often, uh, uh, I think, subconscious, uh, sometimes carelessness and negligence, but not that much. It's not a matter, you know, that I'm brilliant, and uh, I can do things that nobody else can do. I can see things. And uh, it doesn't work that way. It's a matter of looking at the facts objectively and not allowing yourself to be influenced, especially by law enforcement prosecutors. That is an occupational hazard, as far as I'm concerned, among forensic scientists and other, you know, not only pathologists, but criminalists and other forensic scientists uh, trying to please the prosecution. And working with them. They're your friends. They're your allies. You work with them all the time. But it should not be that way. 
the National Academy of Science in the United States of America in February 2009 issued a magnificent report in which they stated and repeated firmly and clearly something that I've been talking about for a long, long time, and that is that forensic scientists working, whether it's a medical examiner, um, whether it's a coroner, uh, a crime lab, forensic science lab, the more correct uh, title, and so on, uh, that you must maintain your independence. You are not there as an arm, an extension of the prosecution. You are a forensic scientist. When I talk to classes, forensic science, and I say to them, you know, be sure you know what you're talking about and what you are uh, seeking to accomplish and achieve academically. If you, you're thinking, boy, you want to go out there and uh, and and solve all these crimes uh, and uh, and so on, like uh, Jack Kleckman on Quincy and television hmm. and other programs like that. You know, you may be pursuing the wrong tack. Become a prosecutor, become a homicide detective, and a wonderful profession is quite honorable. But as as a forensic scientist, that's not your role. Uh, let me try to put it uh, this way. As a forensic pathologist uh, doing an autopsy and reviewing everything, I'm trying to determine when the person died, how they died, um, um, what were the various pathophysiological processes, what correlations of injuries to natural disease processes, and, and so on. Um, and, and there are many things like that. But it's not my purpose to uh, be thinking, boy, if I do this or come up with that, it's going to be Tom Brown or, or Harry Smith. You know, but remember this. You know, you're doing the autopsy, and detectives come in, and they say, uh, well, Doc, uh, uh, we we know it's the husband that that sob he's got a he's got an excuse um, for the whole period except around you know two to four in the morning when he he really he, he really isn't covered and then next thing you know you're coming up with hmm. something that is simply you know not correct <laughs> the the period of of, of time uh, determined by rigor mortis uh, levor mortis algor mortis body temperature is not that scientifically accurate. There are wide ranges. <laughs> let, let, I'd like to. Yeah, go ahead. No, I'd, I'd like to go through because um, we we only have limited time, and mm -hmm. I wish we could do hours. But I'd like to go through a number of the ones that you've you've been very famously involved in, and 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 talk about a few of these cases in particular. Let's start with we mentioned JFK off the top. You were a yes. young coroner from Allegheny County in Pittsburgh. I'm not even sure how a guy who was in Pittsburgh, which is nowhere close to Texas or to Washington, frankly, <laughs> ends up in front of the Warren Commission. Uh, giving testimony, well, but no, you did. It wasn't the Warren Commission. It was the House Select Committee on Assassination. Th thank you. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, I was uh, no nobody from the outside, um, uh, except for the people appointed by the commission. Uh, how I got involved is started in 1966 when I was invited to give a paper at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences um, in Chicago uh, that year, and then this, it just mushroomed thereafter. And quickly to um, move it along, I subsequently wound up testifying three times under oath in this case um, uh, in a federal, before a federal judge when I was consulted by District Attorney Jim Garrison in the Clay Shaw case and then um, <clears throat> before the Rockefeller Commission for about a half a day in 1975 and then before the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1978. Three times I've testified under oath. I was the first non-government appointed, non-government related, supported forensic pathologist given access to the autopsy materials in 1972. And that's when I discovered something that other people knew but had never publicly disclosed that the president's brain was missing and that the brain had not been examined. It was Which is stunning, isn't it? Which is stunning. stunning. Disgusting. I mean, I mean, horrible, horrible. I mean, uh, ask any pathologist there in Canada, anywhere, anywhere at all, um, what, what if they have a brain. I mean, you, 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 and why was that? Ha why did it happen? Because when the brain is fixed in formalin and it hardens and you're able to slice it like a hard boiled egg, one section after another, you would follow then the hemorrhagic tracks of the bullet wounds uh, as the bullets course through the brain. And that is why the brain was not examined because it would have shown that a president was shot in the head twice, once from the rear and once from the front. And then if we had the brain, that, uh, Dr. Wecht, if the brain existed or if it was around and could be examined right now, would it absolutely unquestionably put to end any discussion about what happened? If the brain had been properly fixed, and of course, formalin would have had to have been changed from time to time. You don't just place it in a jar and keep it uh, on a shelf forever. Uh, if the brain had been properly fixed 
and preserved and formal and changed carefully and so on? The answer is yes. Then that specimen could still be examined. Hmm. Uh, but I, I don't think it exists. Um, and uh, nobody's ever accounted for it. Nobody, uh, including the Kennedy family or anybody else, nobody has ever accounted for it. And I'm sure that that's what happened. Uh, just, just think that the autopsy itself was done by two naval pathologists, Humes and Boswell, at Bethesda Naval Hospital, who had never done a gunshot wound autopsy in their entire careers. Can you imagine the Prime Minister of Canada is assassinated? I guarantee you, your top forensic pathologist in, in Montreal, in Toronto, uh, whoever they are, uh, would be called in to do this autopsy. Can you just imagine, as a Canadian citizen, that you would find that doing the autopsy on your prime minister, uh, that's being done by, by two guys who have never done a gunshot wound autopsy? How would you feel, just as a Canadian citizen? Would you be yeah. pretty angry and disgusted about that? But it happened here in our great country of America. So you you said a, you said a moment ago that uh, two shots that you believe that it was two. As a forensic pathologist, do you delve into who fired those shots, or does it matter to you that you just say there were two shots, or do you have an opinion on what happened? Well, I, I have an opinion, but not as a forensic pathologist. <laughs> now we go beyond my realm of expertise. Although I've, I am I'm very interested in politics and always have been. I ran for the U.S. Senate in 1982. Uh, that didn't just happen overnight. But in any event, uh, no, I, 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 it's not for me to determine who, but I express my opinion. And I will tell you what my opinion is. My opinion is that the JFK assassination, we know, was not by, done by the Russians or the Cubans or the Chinese. We can be damn sure of that. It was determined within one hour or less with our ambassadors in Moscow, Beijing, and Havana going directly to the top people there, as well as phone calls uh, from the White House and elsewhere, that none of them was involved. And they quickly ascertained that we have met the enemy and he is us, that this was done by people here in America, top-level people. They had to be active or recently retired CIA military-type people. I think a small cabal, four or five, six people sitting around and deciding that uh, JFK, we can't tolerate five more years of JFK, followed by eight years of Robert Kennedy, 13 years is a lifetime in the socio-political development of a country. And they went, they saw America going to hell in a basket. Kennedy's talking about civil rights and voting rights. Uh, Kennedy is talking about uh, tearing up the CIA in pieces that he threw a piece of paper up into the air, sitting there with Senator Mike Mansfield following the Bay of Pigs a fiasco and so on. Um, and the CIA was running rampant. They were their own government, their own government. Whenever they saw a country that was being run and the interests were not uh, uh, pleasant, or uh, or uh, um, favorable for America, they simply saw to it that that uh, government was overthrown. Sometimes by assassination, hmm. and sometimes uh, by you know political means. Uh, our, our Allende in Chile, our Benz in Guatemala, the M brothers in in Vietnam, uh, Mossadegh in Iran. That's what the CIA did, and that is what happened here with uh, JFK. Let me switch to another one. I, it's funny, I watched this afternoon, uh, knowing you were coming on, I watched a replay of a 1979 TV report, very famous one with Geraldo Rivera. He was with ABC, and he shocked a lot of people that evening in 1979 when he did this full-hour report on the death of Elvis. Elvis, everyone had been told, had died of a heart attack sitting in his bathroom. Uh, Geraldo Rivera comes on, you know, back before the Al Capone vault thing when, you know, Geraldo Rivera was a pretty big deal. And yeah, yeah. you appear... In this, and what's fascinating is you were the one who explained to him on this coverage, and people can see it on YouTube, that this was a drug overdose, not a heart attack. What I don't understand is, in this, you start listing all the drugs that he that was found in his body. Once again, I go back to my question: How are you able to come to what seems like a very obvious conclusion that it was a drug overdose, and all the doctors who are studying him and doing the autopsy can't find this? Well, it wasn't all the doctors. In fact, the pathologist who wound up doing the autopsy, although he didn't speak out forcefully, um, he expressed his uh, disagreement and disapproval. Uh, Jerry Francisco, who was the medical examiner of Tennessee, he made a decision when Elvis, Elvis's death was reported that he would not make it a medical examiner case. He knew that if he did that, that the results would get out one way or another, officially, unofficially, within a matter of days or weeks. So he said it was not his case. And nevertheless, he went to the hospital where the autopsy was being done with family's permission at Baptist Hospital in Memphis and uh, not 
participating in the autopsy, obviously not uh, seeing microscopic tissue slides, obviously not getting toxicology reports. He immediately announces that Elvis Presley died as a result of heart disease. Elvis Presley didn't have any heart disease. He had a mildly enlarged heart considering his girth and weight and so on. It really wasn't very much. Elvis Presley had 11 or 12 central nervous system depressant drugs, all prescribed for him by the in-house medical sycophant, uh, Dr. Nicopolis. Anything that Elvis wanted. Uh, before a performance, during performance, after performance, getting up in the middle of the night to go to the dentist and nobody would bother him or play handball, Dr. Nick would prescribe. And Elvis Presley was second. He spent three, four hours a day in the bathroom. Uh, He was so constipated, his colon had the diameter of an average man's uh, thigh. Um, And, you know, it wasn't intentional, obviously, uh, for Colonel Parker, his manager, or Dr. Nicopolis, who did the prescribing. uh, You know, he was their meal ticket. But uh, they did what Elvis uh, wanted, and they prescribed, and that is what killed Elvis Presley. And it's right there. How did it come out about heart disease? Because Francisco mouthed off, and everybody ran with it, and that's it. You, uh, not shockingly, not surprisingly, I'm guessing, uh, you have an opinion. You've been consulted about the OJ Simpson case as well. Uh, your version is not the official version. Again, probably not surprisingly. Your version is what? My version is that I was that that O.J. Simpson was there uh, with a second person, most probably his son Jason. I believe that this was not a planned uh, double homicide. I believe they they went there. Jason was very angry. Um, and Nicole was supposed to have gone to his restaurant to celebrate that night. She went to another restaurant. Jason, who was known to have a volatile temper, uh, left his place of work um, and went there. And I think that Ron Goldman. And quite regrettably for him, uh, quite fortuitously, unexpectedly, uh, was bringing a pair of glasses, which Nicole had uh, conveniently left at the restaurant for for the glasses to be delivered. Uh, but that's just a little aside. And I think that the argument ensued, and I think it got out of control. Uh, there's no way, in my opinion, that it was O.J. Simpson by himself or even O.J. I'll tell you why. There were 17 wounds in one of the victims, 22 wounds in the other, including carotid arteries and jugular veins in the neck. You know, when you sever somebody's arteries or veins, especially young adult people fighting for their lives, the blood pressure is way up, very, very high, tremendous force uh, for the blood to spread out. It'll go three, four, five, six feet uh, off to one side or the other, and so on. And you'll get blood all over you. All right. So they went to a house shortly thereafter, and the house was tested. Every sink, every toilet, every shower, every tub, um, every bit of plumbing was tested. And these tests are pretty sensitive for blood. They found no evidence of blood. No evidence of blood. No, where's the clothing? Where's the instrumentality? No way that he could have gotten cleaned up like that. No way that he could have been able to do this without having blood in his home. So uh, that's my take. I think that Elvis Presley indeed was there. And then he took the bullet for his son. He was, uh, you know, going to be charged anyway for being there. Um, did, I, did I say Elvis? I'm sorry, my wife just correct me. I'm saying OJ. That, that's did okay. That would have made an even better story if Elvis was there when... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. No, no. Uh, I completely uh, understand. Now, yeah. we only have a minute or so left here. I, I do yeah. have to wonder, do you ever hear, like, I wonder if other coroners when they hear that Cyril Wecht is being brought in to review this thing, if they just kind of roll their eyes or if they tell you, you know, would you please just bug off? We don't want you around. Do do you, do you get love from other coroners or do they just all want you to go away because you're going to challenge the, you know, the orthodox? I I don't get love. Although two of my very close friends are among the top forensic pathologists, Tom Noguchi and Les Hodges, now retired and Michael Vaughn, former chief medical examiner in New York city. But aside from them, and a few others, and so on. Uh, no, I've, I've I've paid a price. Nothing serious, but no. There's a lot of envy out there, a lot of dismay and unhappiness because I've come into their uh, communities and I've testified: California, Iowa, Texas, New York, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, you name it. And uh, no, they're not happy at all. And uh, so, you know, screw them. <laughs> do, I mean, does anyone ever, uh, no one's going to threaten bodily harm, but how often do you have people no. say, uh, how often do you have threats of lawsuits against you for your theories? I haven't had any threats of lawsuits except one um, in a case uh, um, involving uh, John Benet Ramsey, but I've not had any threats of lawsuits. There's no basis for lawsuits from my colleagues or others. I testify and I testify under oath and I tell the truth. If I lie, um, 
or covered up something, by now someone would have nailed me for perjury. You can bet your life on that. But I have had other things happen to me, including, uh, as set forth and discussed in my book, um, uh, two uh, serious criminal trials that cost me millions of dollars in Allegheny County when the sheriff and the district attorney were unhappy about my conducting open inquest in every police-related death, pursuit, apprehension, arrest, and incarceration, um, and I conducted a public open inquest, you know, going back uh, to ancient English laws. They still continue to do in England. They don't do that, medical examiners in America. They just fall in line with whatever the district attorney wants to do. So I, I was charged with serious crimes then, and I beat them. And then <clears throat> in 2006, I was charged with 84 felony counts by the U.S. attorney and the FBI. 84 felony counts. And I wish there were time to review exactly all the details. Suffice it to say that by uh, late spring of 2009, all of those charges were gone. Most of them even dismissed before they got to a new federal judge who wrote a blistering 55-page report dismissing the remaining 14 charges. So, you know, but it cost me. It cost me millions of dollars and a lot of anguish. But, you know, I got a great wife and great kids and a lot of good friends, and uh, and I made it through. And, uh, and I did it. <laughs> I, the, uh, uh, the... I love that, uh, that song, you know, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. <laughs> well, yes, and the, and you can read about your way. Uh, the book is called The Life and Deaths of Cyril Wecht, Memoirs of America's Most Controversial Forensic Pathologist. It's available on Amazon, I'm told. Uh, people can go look it up. So many, we didn't even get into... So we, we didn't have time. With so many other big name, famous cases that uh, the Doctor Weck has been involved in, uh, Branch Davidians, and yeah, yeah, on and on and on. Yeah, yeah no, I, I the book is uh, the book probably could be about four volumes. I'm guessing if 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 <laughs> if you had really wanted it to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you're a wonderful interviewer and a great host, and I thank you for your wonderful personal comments. It's a pleasure, and I appreciate your having. Well, it is a pleasure for me. As I say, I've been, uh, I became aware of Dr. Wecht. I became aware of you years ago, and it's, it's, uh, it's been a treat to have you on. Thank you for your time today. That is Dr. Cyril Wecht, um, who again has been, you go through the list of the biggest, most controversial, most infamous cases. And he's, he's mentioned a bunch of them. JFK, OJ Simpson, Elvis Presley, John Bonet Ramsey, Ted Kennedy with Sarah Joe uh, Kopechny with the, um, uh, Chappaquiddick and you go through, I mean, all these different things that he's been, it's always him they go to. It's always him they go to. Just a, a guy who has been in the middle of the encyclopedia of big name crimes, largely in the States, but even around the world and uh, fascinating to talk to him. Wish we had a lot more time, but again, the book, The Life and Deaths of Cyril Wecht, W-E-C-H-T, if you're interested, Memoirs of America's Most Controversial forensic pathologist. Appreciate him coming on today to do this. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.